Welcome to Silvacast, the podcast about all things silviculture. My name is Brad Hutnick. And I'm Greg Edge. We are both silviculturists with the Wisconsin DNR Division of Forestry and your hosts for today's show. Bonjour, Gregor. How are your legs feeling? Well, uh, not so bad, all things considered. How are yours feeling? <laughs> uh, they're, they're good, but you know, days like today, I feel old. You know, like, like we were running with young people and I don't know, that just makes me feel um, vintage, right? Like you look well, around, you don't see any gray hair. It's like some of us are more vintage than others around here. Uh, well, just it, saying, hey, you're just as vintage as I am, my friend. So <laughs> but, the only reason op- the only reason your legs are sore is because you were trying to keep up with your nephew. Yeah. What is he, he like? Twenty four. Yeah, that's a mistake like that. That was not that was not the right thing to do. But uh, <laughs> and to bring our audience up to speed. Uh, you and I are runners and, and like we just, we've been talking about here, we're not spring chickens, but we do hit the bricks. Like when we're, we're out on the road together at a hotel, Greg, we, we go out in the morning for a run or we, we run Mm -hmm. after work. So some of us hit the bricks harder than others. Yeah. So it's, yeah, you just hit the bricks literally recently, didn't you? Yeah. Speaking of being old, took a big digger on the sidewalk, uh, last week on some ice. So. We recovered quickly. Yeah. Okay. And I, I've done the same thing. In fact, I have torn gloves that kind of a, that I that are somehow I keep stopping myself with my hands, and so that palms of my gloves keep uh, coming off. So why are we talking about runs, Brad? Because, because nobody la- knows this. Well, because last weekend you and I were in Stevens Point, and we both ran the Point Bach Run. Oh yes, we did on Saturday. That was fun. <laughs> you, that's right. Oh, it was a hoot. And we even got to see some old friends from UW-Stevens Point, uh, Melinda Vokun, and, and Paul Daruska was there, so sitting at the start line. And just a little background, too, on that run. So the Point Brewery sponsors the Point Bach Run every year, I think in the spring, because that's traditionally when the Bach is made. And so Stevens Point is known for both the College of Natural Resources there, well, where Haley's at and for point beer. And I should point out, that's probably not a coincidence, right, Greg? Like if you're going to have a college of natural resources, you probably need to have a brewery nearby. That's really good. That always goes well together. I think I always enjoyed that at point. Yep. So in any event, you and I were at the run with, I think maybe a couple thousand other runners hitting the streets of the city of wonderful water. I didn't know that's what Stevens Point was called, but it is. And I have to say that free beer at the finish line and running are a great combination. Yep. And silviculture and beer are a good combination too. So just to, that's a plug maybe for sponsors. So Point Brewery, <laughs> you should be a sponsor of Silvacast. You, you could have your name here. Brad, I don't think they're probably listening to a silviculture podcast, no, but we'll, we'll have to stop in next time we're in point and kind of let them know. <laughs> Tell that, them about it. Yeah, this is going to be big. They need to do this. All right, but let's let's get ex- existential here. Dig, dig a little deeper. So, Greg, why do you run? Um, I'm going to say uh, just what our friend Melinda said, and that's uh, for the free beer at the finish line. <laughs> yeah. Basically, yeah, I, I remember that line as soon as we were getting ready to start. She said that. But no, no, I mean, big picture. Why do you run? Okay. Big picture. Um, okay. Well, I suppose, uh, because I hate getting older and I'm fighting it with all my being. And so I simply run 
so I can stay in good enough shape to do the things I want to do, get out in the field and just be able to do that. Okay. So it's a quality of life decision then on your part. Yeah, I suppose so. Okay. So, so maybe you'll see where I'm going here in a second. Um, <laughs> well, cause it, you know, you've got to dig for it once in a while. Would you rather have quality in your years that you have, or would you have quantity in the years that you have left? <laughs> the years I have left. Can't well, I have both? It sounds uh, like uh, I get two years of quality and yeah, or three nothing. To, three to five, Greg. So just take your pick, you know? <laughs> okay. I better make them good. Well, I'm really, I really think quality is probably the answer I would give. But it, and it really, it takes some thought, right? Unless you're like one of those genetic freaks that's going to live forever and, and smoke a pack <laughs> a day, right? Like that's the way it is. Okay. That lets me out. Yeah. Well, today, this discussion we're going to about quality and quantity reminds me of a question that we received from our listener, Joe in Iowa, who asked about what it takes to grow and produce veneer as a part of forest management. Brad, how late were you up last night trying to think up that segue? I, I wrote that. Actually, I shouldn't say under the influence of beer, but let's just say Point Beer was nearby when I did that. <laughs> but in any event, Today, we're going to be talking with Dr. Jan Wiedenbeck, recently retired research project leader and forest products technologist with the Northern Research Station of the Forest Service. We'll be digging into her work around veneer, what it is, and what we can do as foresters to influence its production. Dr. Jan Wiedenbeck, welcome to Silvacast. Nice to be here. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Oh, we're so happy to have you. Now, we, re we understand you're recently retired. So congratulations on retirement. I, it's going I, well. Thank you. I, I've always thought about retirement as theoretical, but now I'm kind of like, you know, as you get older, I'm like, uh oh, this is, it's a reality. So, so it's something I'm aspiring to. So, uh, so that's good news. Now for our listeners who may not be familiar with your work, uh, just tell us about your career and your work with the Forest Service. All right. I started with the Forest Service, uh, in graduate school, actually, after working with private industry for six years and on Southern Yellow Pine management and in and in the mills as well, I went to grad school and I had an opportunity to work on a graduate project that was funded by the Forest Service, a research project, and uh, and it's been a lot of years since then. But uh, I moved from being really strictly looking at wood products and efficiency in milling as my as my specialty to looking more at how we manage forests and how that affects wood quality for different types of products. And I suspect that has something to do with uh, the connection today that, that I'm joining you on the podcast. The last few years of my career, well, off and on during my career, but certainly the last few years, I was more in a uh, uh, research unit leader role and uh, got to learn about all the other cool stuff scientists were doing in that capacity. Where were you stationed out of, Jan? Well, I've worked most all of my career with the Forest Service in West Virginia. West uh, Virginia. Okay. Yeah. I live right uh, outside Blacksburg, Virginia. The two are, you know, share the state line, the two, the counties that are right there. Sometimes we get confused with the Forest Service's uh, boundaries and being non-Forest Service people. Yeah. So this is kind of a Silvacast tradition, Jan, but 
how did you become interested in forestry? So maybe going a little further back. Uh-huh. I expect that what I'm about to give you is a fairly traditional answer to that silver cast <laughs> question. Uh, exposure as a youth to forests, natural resources through family traveling, camping, hiking adventures, things I'm eternally grateful to my parents for. Responses like mine point really point to the importance of some of the programs like Every Kid in the Woods uh, and other outreach activities that are done by organizations to bring urban and suburban youth the opportunity to experience forests and natural environments. Did, did you grow up in the country or were you a, a city kid? I was a small city kid. I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan and okay. went to uh, University of Michigan when they had a forestry program many years ago yeah. um, as an undergrad in forestry. Well, I hope my kids appreciate me taking them camping then after you said that. So I'm going to ask them. Well, hopefully I, I'll, I'm not, I'm afraid to ask mine, Greg. So I, we'll just <laughs> leave it at that. So, Jan, the idea for this episode came from one of our listeners, uh, and that's uh, Joe in Iowa, and he asked about what it takes to grow a veneer log. So, Joe, hey, we're happy for the question, and and we've got we've got the just the person to answer this and really delve into it today. So, just so we're all on the same page, um, how do we define, or how would you define what a veneer log is? Well, we really do need to start with this question uh, since the word veneer is is used for a variety of products. I tend to believe your interest and my intent is to be talking about the highest quality hardwood logs that produce the highly visually appealing thin sheets of wood veneer. The term veneer is also used for wood sheets that are cut on a rotary lathe and manufactured into plywood, for instance. Uh, It's also used for wood that's sliced up in uh, various, uh, into various products like OSB and laminated veneer lumber. But here, the uh, really high, high um, grade appearance veneers that might be on doors, that might be on architectural millwork, that type of product. And those kind of high-end logs that you're talking about, how common are those in our Eastern hardwoods? Are they just a very small fragment of what we're looking at in most stands? Yeah, Greg, they are. Uh, Less than 1% is what uh, we, we typically expect will be the yield of, of veneer logs veneer quality trees that could yield veneer logs uh, in almost any forest stand that has been well managed. So less than that in a poorly managed stand. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So generally less than 1% overall. Yeah. Hmm. You know, it, it's interesting. I never thought about what you were saying. So we, we associate veneer with that highest quality, but, but it sounded like maybe there's veneer that as a product that isn't necessarily highest quality. Is that correct? Right. Well, the the term veneer is used by industry for some of the lower grade materials, too, that are still peeled or cut with a lathe, but for not the highest quality. Yeah. Pure, clear sheets. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Okay, Greg, we're going to, so Jan, we're introducing a 
a new little wrinkle into SolarCast. So these are true or false questions. Not like we invented true or false, but we're going to try something different with it. So well, we'll just sprinkle these throughout our conversation. So in uh, just looking back through a lot of the papers that you've written and a lot of the things, uh, true or false, the near is largely limited to butt logs, no matter the species. True. <laughs> 80 to 90% of but, yep. of the butt logs, of the veneer logs are butt logs. Uh, maybe species-related differences do exist. I believe in cherry and in red oak. You sometimes might have up to 20% second logs that, that would be sold or qualify as veneer logs as well. But typically 10, 15, at most 20% upper logs. Yeah. What would be those facts? So cherry, what, what, what makes, what separates those species uh, with some of that? Uh, taper, consistent, fairly consistent uh, color. Um, so a fairly consistent heartwood component. Um, those are pretty important aspects. Uh, trees that uh, grow particularly straight. If you've got a tree that has a, you know, a lot of uh, sweep or crook to it you're going to have less appealing veneer qualities. So yellow poplar is probably on that list too, but yellow poplar tends to be used for a interior type veneer, not the, the face covering of, of fine doors and furniture. Yeah. That brings up another true false question that we had. Can every species produce a veneer log? Well, veneer is market dependent. So... Every species can produce higher quality logs and lower quality logs, but we certainly have species that are not in any kind of demand in the, in the hardwood marketplace. You know, for, for example, some of the uh, species that have a, a lot of color to them that is quite variable color might be not very desirable and almost never used for mm high-end face veneer product. Mm -hmm. in, in your career, have you seen differences in how like some species might be valued for veneer at one point and then maybe it drops off or you see other species like, you know, go, wow, we've got veneer in this. Yeah, absolutely. We've, uh, we saw a big drop in the uh, relative uh, interest and in, in value of, of oak, for instance, red oak in particular back in the, in the nineties, and uh, at the same time, you know, walnut's been fairly consistently important as mm -hmm. a veneer species. Cherry has, has been more or less uh, valuable as a veneer species. We have the color factor, you know, light woods versus dark woods and, and uh, the fact that there seems to be quite, quite a uh, design and, and interior design related uh, aspect to what's in and what's out. Does where a log is growing, does that make a difference in terms of its veneer quality or, or even, I guess, amount of veneer? Like, are there geographic areas where there's more veneer or is that yeah. an influence? If you think about the, uh, that most species have range of uh, uh, geographies where they can be found. And across a species range, there's going to be elevational differences, soil differences, mm -hmm. um, insect, insect uh, 
impact differences, uh, temperature differences, droughtiness differences. They're, they're definitely across the range of any given species would be and are, would be expected to be, but that there truly are differences in how the wood itself uh, will appear and how the percentage possibility of finding veneer logs that are of have attributes of interest to the industry will, will show up. For instance, uh, ash, ash, uh, a veneer species that will be no more at some point in time, uh, <laughs> yeah. is, has a part of Virginia that is thought to have absence of one of its defects that is particularly egregious. It's called glassworm. It's an insect. And there's a part, a part of the Piedmont and uh, area around Charlottesville, Virginia, that's thought to be really good for producing ash that doesn't have this particular figure in it that's objectionable. We know that Allegheny Plateau cherry is uh, thought to have less gum pockets, gum streaks in it. Uh, similarly, parts of New York and, and northern West Virginia have pretty high quality cherry compared to cherry in other parts mm -hmm. of the country. And this is insect dependent, typically, too. Yeah, because sometimes I've heard buyers talking about, oh, we like to, you know, get veneer logs from a particular area or whatever mm -hmm. from some characteristics. And that makes me think about a paper that you wrote um, with some co-authors I thought was really interesting about these veneer buyers and what they look at um, to distinguish a veneer log. And so what would you say are some of those really critical cues that buyers look at when they're determining to buy logs? Well, they, uh, they read the bark. They're said to be reading the bark. And my time spent visiting with them, uh, trying to learn from them, it seems some species have bark that tells the story more fully than other species. Uh, species that it's pretty easy to tell what's going on inside the log based on uh, bark patterns. Hmm. Might include uh, yellow poplar, red oak, species where it's harder to tell uh, about issues of concern with the veneer uh, potential Sugar maple, one of interest in, in your part mm -hmm. of the country, Lake yeah, States region, sure. is a particularly hard species to be able to see what's going on with the color, which is an important factor. Uh, also, some of the species have uh, rougher bark that makes it harder to tell whether that bark pattern you're seeing is an indication of an underlying defect or whether it's just... Uh, bark that's kind of rough and uh, flaky and not able to, to be uh, used for prediction whatsoever. I thought it was really interesting in there too, that not only are they looking at the bark, but they're looking at those end logs and thinking about the growth rings on the tree. And so this was something that was new to me is thinking about kind of uh, the quality factor based on the rings and you use the term in there, ring density and ring texture. Could you explain to us what that is? Simply ring density is rings per inch. Ring texture is what consistency is there over lengthy periods of time in the density. So do you have 
the same, you know, one millimeter wide ring throughout the 40 years that constitute the more peripheral part of the log that's away from the pith, which is the part that would produce the really high quality wood? Or do you have, you know, three millimeter wide rings interspersed with one millimeter wide rings and even narrower rings? So texture has to do with, is it consistent, that growth rate? And the texture is having it be consistent is a really important attribute. And I was going to say, you know, that's really interesting because we don't really think about that. I mean, I I haven't read anything in our guidance that talks about trying to maintain consistency. Like, you know, the faster the growth, the better. So get that tree out in the open, make it thump, you know, put on growth as opposed to maybe just put that consistent volume on or that consistent growth on at a regular basis. That's interesting. Yeah. And that's one of the places where forest management can, of course, really, really Mm -hmm. affect um, an attribute of importance for, for veneer log potential. Yeah. So maybe backing up just a second. So I was, I was thinking about when you were talking about like reading the bark, because I think that's really, I like that term. So when, when veneer buyers are reading that bark, so we we just talked about the rings and kind of how they can maybe read that to see what that value would be. But if they were looking at that outside of the tree, what are the dominant things that they're going to be looking for that we as foresters might be able to to think about or at least recognize ourselves? Yeah, well, they'll be looking to see if there's any holes that might be indicator of woodpeckers going after insects that might be in the cambium and and influencing uh, whether or not there's streakiness in the wood. Mm-hmm. We'll be looking to see if there's any minor or even um, more significant uh, curvature to the to the uh, orientation of the wood of the bark excuse me going up and down the tree indicating mm-hmm. that there's overgrown overgrown knots uh, overgrown limbs looking for any indication of uh, epicormics that, that might be seen uh, subtly or less so uh, on the bark surface. Wounds, of course, are pretty egregious and are, are relatively obvious for quite a long time, even, even after the wound has closed. But mm-hmm. that is something they'll be staying away from, obviously. Yeah, like some of those bigger defects, you know, those will already be on the saw log pot or, the, you know, the saw timber yeah. pile. Yeah. And I always look at a veneer log with, veneer buyers and I don't see what they're seeing sometimes because yeah. they're it seems pretty subtle to me but like yeah. they can see it yeah it's pretty amazing I I've had a chance to to do what you're talking about spend time with them in the log yard and in the log yard they've got more clues at least they've got the end of the log to look at yeah. where they might have a more more evidence of bird pack more in evidence of gum spots more evidence of of some of the other defects that are critical color variation. I've always appreciated looking at logs with a veneer buyer because it, it's like, like watching someone taste wine who really knows what they're doing. And when you see them kind of just picking over that log and their experience with that, that's, it's just always fascinating to me what they see that, that I just skip right past. They ought to have some special fancy name for, for them, right? That's what's right. the word, what's the word for, uh, Oh yeah. What wine? Wine connoisseurs, wine, wine tasters. tasters. Yeah, I don't yeah. remember what that term is, but <laughs> <laughs> so kind of coming around to our listener Joe, when 
uh, and you've already alluded to this, Jan, on why he asked is how do foresters management influence these this production of veneer logs? And um, so there's a a bunch of places we could go here, but maybe just starting out with sort of this big picture question, are there things that we as foresters are doing wrong that lower the potential for veneer within a stand? If we know that a stand has the potential to have a decent percentage of veneer logs in it, and there can be stands that might have four or 5% veneer logs, um, or the trees that could yield veneer logs. If uh, that is identified as, as a stand attribute, then any kind of thinning activity in, in particular uh, needs, needs to be done cautiously. You don't want to open up the, the overstory, the forest to the extent that all of a sudden all the resources all the sun, all the water, all the soil resources are focused on those trees where they you get this, this huge growth spurt, which will cause the, the texture issues with the rings, but also can cause the epicormic you know, issues with some of the latent buds that, that you have uh, under, the, under the surface, creating uh, some limminess that... Uh, makes it automatically no longer a veneer log candidate. Yeah. I, I like that idea of thinking about sites. So when you were thinking about maybe a site that has that veneer potential, would that be something you would have to rely on past yield from that stand to know about, or could it be related to site quality, you know, like site index or habitat type or something like that? Oh, I, I don't think relying on past, except for regionally. I mean, we know yeah. that that uh, certain stands, for instance, on the Allegheny Plateau have, you know, mm-hmm. are likely to produce the, these fabulous cherry logs. But more, more uh, current assessment, I would say, I've got a nice percentage of trees that have been growing without any kind of weather event that, that has created, you know, a lot of damage uh, that are good quality in terms of limminess, you know, fairly clear, fairly straight. If I've got a high percentage of those types of trees that aren't showing external bark indicators, well then if we're ready to go in and, and uh, do some thinning in that stand, those, those trees that have that, you know, they're a really prime grade one, potentially veneer quality to them might want to move away from them a little bit further where, where you do removals or other activities. Where does um, diameter come into play here? So do foresters sometimes, or do we sometimes harvest too soon before we get those prime logs with high potential up to those veneer status? Certainly the higher uh, value veneer logs typically have minimum diameters associated with them. On the other hand, if you leave trees just you know to grow forever in the canopy, they often start to lose vigor at some point in time, which, mm-hmm. which starts to create some issues with with color and and other aspects that are attributes important for veneer. But most uh, veneer logs have to be minimum sizes. Um, 
and it ranges between species, but 15 or 16 inch um, small end diameter uh, inside the bark is probably a minimum for almost all, all of the species. So there's kind of a balancing act there between <laughs> getting to the diameters, but not getting to where we start seeing defect detracting from that. Exactly. Well, okay. So another true false question then. So true or false, longer rotations are longer rotations, I'm sorry, rather than maybe shorter rotations are usually necessary to produce veneer logs. And you don't want me to say to you, define longer and shorter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Brad, that's a really vague question. Okay. Well, well, Greg, they're meant to be, right? So, but no, I mean like, um, say like standard, right? So say you were managing a standard uh, saw log rotation. If we were thinking veneer, would we want to go slightly longer in general or is is that fine? Or do we just want to avoid the short rotations? I would just, I would say mostly avoiding the short rotations is the goal. Going longer can indeed uh, put some, some trees at risk, right? With uh, weather events and with uh, greater in insect um, risk factors, avoiding short rotations for sure, because you want the trees to be up in the you know, 20 inch or so DBH class to be able to get the log sizes we need. I think that kind of goes back too to what you were saying, Jan, about thinning. So I think about that consistency or that texture and density. And if we're trying to keep it really consistent in those rings, you said to be cautious about thinning. How do we go about thinning to kind of avoid those big jumps, but still keep that growing, that stand growing in a vigorous sense. So we develop those diameters. So what should we be thinking about in that whole context of how we thin? I am not a silviculturalist. You guys, you guys can maybe put some numbers to what I'm about to say, but not thinning too heavily um, is, is a important factor here. If you've got high value merchantable timber that you're going to leave as residuals um, after the after the uh, thinning activity. So not opening it a, uh, a stand up to where you've got a lot, a lot more light and a lot more uh, moisture coming down uh, as a resource for for individual trees. Now that can be kind of Again, a, a fine line. A tri- there's that trickiness to it, right? Mm-hmm. We're all worried about restoring oak in places that are becoming so maple dominated. At least in my p- part of the country, mm-hmm. yep. same yep. here. Yep. Same here. Yeah. So, uh, and we we want to have hotter fires to to uh, be able to promote the the oak recruitment into the canopy, and we want to uh, have more openings so that the saplings and seedlings have more of a chance. So it has a lot to do with uh, what your goals are, right? And, right. and that's a lot about management. If, yeah. it's an, if you're uh, a veneer company that owns the timberland versus if you're a private landowner who may want to get the most potential uh, income from the land at some unknown period of time in the future, or if you're the U.S. Forest Service, the state forest forestry systems, uh, others who are really more multi-use res- wildlife oriented. 
yeah, then your goals are going to, or your, you know, tactics are going to be different, but I could see Brad, even like based on what Jan's saying here, we've talked a lot in the past about stocking charts and using right. those to kind of guide the structure in the stand. I could see where foresters might be tending towards uh, keeping that stand at a little higher relative density or stocking if it's got that high veneer potential. And and that's an objective, obviously. Yeah, And, and now that you mention it, I have seen stocking charts in the past that have had quality lines on them where you don't go too high basically with your, your density. And I think like what you were saying, Greg, it's probably maybe maintaining it in a certain range to kind of, to to kind of keep that there. I think that's, I I hadn't put two and two together, but I think that that probably plays a huge role in that. So, and and thinking about it, Jan, so if we don't want those big swings and, and we're thinking about thinning, then it probably means we just need to plan on coming back to these stands more frequently if we're really serious about this, right? Agreed. Yes. Yep. And, and so if that's the case, then it's just going to be maybe balancing it against some of those, like you were saying, wounds can play a, a role. So you'd have more opportunity for wounds. You just have to be careful every time you go back in for one of these things. You know you're going to be more, so you're going to go back more frequently, but you just have to be just as careful every time. And I believe the largest fraction of wounds in harvest operations are along skid roads yeah. uh, as, as opposed to being felling wounds. So that, that to me is a much more avoidable type of wound right. as well. Yep. Yeah, that's a really good point because you can plan those, right? And if you're trying to protect particular areas of the stand um, to avoid that, but just like you said, Brad, if you thin a little lighter more often, but you also have more opportunities for that uh, wounding. Um, So it's that balance act again. All right. Another true-false question. Okay. So true or false, uh, even age natural regeneration systems are just as likely to produce veneer and and high-quality logs as uneven aged natural natural regeneration systems. True. Right. I mean, false. Wait a minute. I mean, it depends. <laughs> That's the <laughs> right answer to wait, everything, wait. Jan. Now, now you sound just like Greg. <laughs> they sound like us. That's, That's right. That's that's our answer to everything. Wait, what was what? No, it depends. <laughs> I thought you might have heard yeah. that before yeah, or none. said it yourself. Oh, yeah. On the one hand, even age systems are likely more vulnerable to disease, insects, widespread damage if there's events from ice storms, blowdowns, those types of things, right? On the other hand, uneven age systems may be uneven aged because they've been treated, as we've been talking about, to uh, produce the variable age class distribution, partial harvests, prescribed fire, or they're uneven age because of some natural event that's occurred to create gaps for new regeneration to take hold. These events and activities potentially cause tree wounding too, right? Uh, Or produce a growth rate response. Or perhaps they're uneven aged because of species succession in an unaffected forest with shade tolerant species becoming a growing component over time. It seems like in that case, it matters what species of veneer logs you uh, have an interest in uh, as, and what point or in the uh, stand age development cycle you are assessing that veneer potential. 
Let's see, did that make any sense? A stand of black cherry on the Allegheny Plateau. I'm sorry I keep going back to black cherry, but I'm I'm over in this region. I'm pretty familiar I, with I like black cherry. I, I wish we had uh, some more pa- positive happenings with black cherry right now than, than uh, we have from some. You probably heard about some of the plight of black cherry from Susan Stout a couple months ago. Yes, but yeah. That stand of black cherry on the Allegheny Plateau in Pennsylvania that is becoming uneven aged with maple birch components becoming dominant and co-dominant over many decades. Uh, We might expect it to begin to see loss of vigor vigor in that black cherry component, right? And the Mm -hmm. demise in the quality of the remaining stems. But you guys are in Wisconsin. Uh, You're in the Lake States. You might be thinking about even age versus versus uneven age maple stands. Yeah. Yep. May, maybe you can elaborate some on that uh, yeah. with what we've been discussing. Yeah, I think especially with some of the mid to intolerant species that even aged obviously is more akin to the silvics of those species. So you're probably going to maintain better veneer. But yeah, we deal a lot in northern hardwoods and sugar maple. So we ha- always have this debate of even versus uneven aged and, and kind of which, which is better. So that's just something that we struggle with. And I think we've had, you know, cause we've had that discussion about preferring the, at least historically, I think we've always geared our, our veered toward uneven age management with, with our Northern hardwoods. I think one of the reasons is that, and, and Greg, you can correct me here, but, but there was this uh, supposition that if we're growing those trees for quality, then we're going to see uh, greater, uh, like a above the butt log, you'd have a greater probability of getting something like higher quality saw timber and or veneer with uneven age as opposed to even age. And I, so I know I've read that, but I haven't actually, I can't say that I've seen it in person on, on say like timber sales or things like that, but. Yeah, I think uh, in sugar maple, that was always the supposition you would get taller, you get higher log heights in the uneven aged because you get more correction. Uh, with the side shade, but I don't know if that kind of also plays into having more veneer. Um, just, just like we talked about, just because you have more saw logs doesn't mean you have more veneer. So yeah, it's a good question. I've always really been curious, and this maybe this goes back to this geographic thing again, but I've been really curious about wood color. And you said that veneer buyers are looking at that color and that color is important to them. Yeah. Yep. Has there been studies on what influences that? And there have been a few, uh, a lot of studies on teak, but that you know, mm. to some extent, yeah, similar. Uh, yeah, the, principles. we can transfer this, but uh, wood color—it's wood color of a specific type for some of the veneer log species. And it's also consistency again, just as we talked about texture consistency of growth rings, it's color consistency that's really quite important. When it comes to color, the most important factor influencing color, there's been some uh, results in some of these studies that uh, contrast with one another that disagree. The most important factor in a study that was done on color in white oak species over in Europe was that the lighter The younger trees had lighter and more yellowish color than the older trees, and the amount of available water is the major soil factor influencing wood color from that study. 
Most of the variation in the oak wood remained unexplained, however, and it's possible that some of it's under genetic control. Uh, another study that was done in Canada showed, and this was based on birch, showed that tree diameter and vigor significantly influenced the proportion of discolored wood in boards. They looked at the boards sawn out of the trees as their way of getting access to the color parameters. The effect of tree age did not have a significant influence uh, in, in their study. The average area of uh, about 32% discolored wood was obtained for across all boards, but those that were from more vigorous trees, dominant, co-dominant trees, um, was a considerably higher percentage of the tree was uh, consistent in color, not irregular in color. Mm -hmm. Let me see. I have one. I found one other study, and this is something I always wanted to do and didn't get done. And I'm not coming out of retirement to do it. <laughs> Leave it to somebody else. <laughs> yes, exactly. On um, another study on teak, it was concluded that climatic variables should be considered um, as the most important oh. causal variables to explain wood color. Hmm. Uh, darker wood was associated with dry climates. We heard something in the first study that I was giving you a quote from about moisture as well. Soils, moisture is certainly something that uh, you hear log buyers, uh, veneer log buyers reference as an aspect that they anecdotally believe to be important. Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult thing to put your arms around. I can see, you know, and some of those things uh, foresters aren't in control of like the soils or necessarily the climate or the genetics, although you can manipulate the genetics a little bit. But some of the other things you mentioned too, we can control like keeping trees vigorous and, you know, and healthy to avoid wounding. You said, so that discoloration can come from that as well. So it sounds like there's some factors we can control a little bit and some that we can't. In fact, Greg, you mentioned uh, genetics. I uh, some the folks in Missouri and Illinois. I think John. I think it was led by John Phelps. Looked at uh, walnut, which has always been a species of keen interest for right. veneer quality, yep. right? And they they did some some testing that indicated that there did not appear to be for walnut genetic control over color. Hmm. And that's interesting because I have heard buyers talk about at least in. Wisconsin, Iowa, Minnesota, kind of the, where they see differences in some of the color that's associated. They could tell if they had boards coming in, they had an idea based on the color from where it came from, because they thought there might be a little more um, like black oak mixing with red oak. And so there was a slightly different, so the color was slightly different in those areas. I've heard those comments as I think I said earlier from buyers about just these geographic differences in color particularly. Color is one of the factors in black cherry that is thought to be pointing to black cherry from the Allegheny can, you know, Plateau as being favored as well as a you know, gum, absence of gum and, and the color from mm -hmm. that part of the, I think that uh, Southern Michigan and Central Michigan are supposed to have the kind of color of red oak that is favored, for instance. Yeah. And uh, well, maple, New England maple, right? And uh, 
and then some of the Lake States maple is has the color that really creamy white that is favored for maple veneer. In past shows, so we've talked about like maybe some of these, like we just talked about wounding coming from uh, operations in the stands, but we've also talked with foresters and we've talked with biologists and we've heard more and more about prescribed burning as a silvicultural tool that maybe is going to favor oak and do things. And one of the main things you hear back from, at least when we're out in the field, is that, well, that's great. I love the idea, except what's this going to do to the quality in my stand? Yeah. So, you know, is, is, is prescribed fire kind of, we can, can we do that where we think we're going to get veneer as well? That is a question that is being worked on right now. Um, And I was uh, involved in the study at its inception, but uh, it's being carried on now by Mike Saunders at Purdue University. Um, Many, um, most veneer log procurement personnel will tell you fire is not compatible with veneer production, right? They will tell you this emphatically without offering any possible exceptions. Yeah. In my opinion, to be to be confirmed or negated, <laughs> but yeah. I think I I lean t- strongly toward the uh, notion that it'll be confirmed. There may be situations where uh, prescribed fire and veneer tree log value recovery are not in conflict. The fact that prescribed fires of lower medium intensity are often patchy fires with areas that are thoroughly burned and areas that are unburned means that some proportion of trees remain untouched by the flames and heat of prescribed fire. The species of overstory trees that are of interest, right, uh, that have that veneer log potential are a factor since we know thicker bark species are better protected from injury caused by fire. Those are a couple of the factors that come to mind. Now, we have, um, as part of related studies, been looking at prescribed fires impact on a grade one, uh, grade one, two, and three uh, saw logs. And, and we've based this on national forests that have been doing prescribed fires for some length of time, working with uh, Wayne, the the Hoosier, the uh, Daniel Boone, and the one that's in Missouri, Mark Twain. Mark Twain, yeah. Yep. Mark Twain. Oh, my. I'll <laughs> never hear the end of that. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, so those are some of the national forests where there's been larger uh, burning programs for longer periods of time, especially the Mark Twain and the Hoosier. Yeah. And uh, we found that that injuries, any evidence of uh, degradation is much more related to the number of fires as opposed, as opposed to whether or not there was a fire, what the species were on the lands that were burned, et cetera. So if you're more than three or four fires, really more than five fires is where we're seeing there could be some loss in some of the timber quality. And, and the first and second fire, so you may potentially create a, a wound or a second wound, you know, open it back up, open it back up. And that's when you start to see that mm-hmm. you have some bigger issues. So with yeah. time until like say harvest of the tree that's wounded. So, so maybe you have, would that play a role in that too? Absolutely. Yeah. You're right on. Um, if, if it's only been 
a handful of years, maybe even up to 10 or 12 years since the, the wounding happened. You know, that's going to come off in the slab boards in the sawmill yeah. or in flitches that they do in cutting the veneer to, before they really start slicing. I think that's a really important point, Brad, particularly where we're using fire as a silvicultural tool where we may not have a long-term burning regime. Maybe it's more focused. Right. You know, that damage would come off. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious too, because, um, you know, the, I'm trying to remember, we had, a, um, we had a meeting years ago when we were talking about, I think it was, and we, the, the topic came up about like maybe what you talked about earlier, site assessment and being able to identify as veneer a potential. So say you had a stand that had a real high veneer potential and you have a stand that doesn't, is it going to, does that play a role in whether you would put fire into either of those or, and I'm, and I remember, Greg, I don't know if you remember this. Uh, it was Joe Marshall, I think from Missouri who made the analogy. And he said something like, and I, I don't know, you know, this is one of those things you just hear, but he said, um, he didn't use it. I think he said a hammer, but it will use a key. Like he said, now, if you're going to take a key to my boss's truck, which is beautiful, then it's going to do a ton of damage and it's going to, man, that's really awful. But if I take a key to my truck, well, it's just a beater. So it's not going to make a difference. So, so his equation was that maybe we need to think twice, but I'm, I'm curious about at a stand level, if that makes sense. If we have a stand that has a, a real high veneer log or veneer tree uh, component to it right now, I would definitely pause before putting fire there because the veneer log buyers even you know beyond the physical aspect of it i i have talked to you know, many a veneer log buyer who just you know they're either going to do something like a 20% across the board oh, reduction right. in what they're going to offer for those veneer trees or they're or they're just not even going to look at the stamp now if we can get past that so so there's the social aspect but you're asking this question more from the physical aspect. Right. And I tend to agree with Joe, but I'm really looking forward to the, to the uh, results that Mike Saunders gets uh, off the Purdue, the forest where he's got, cause he's actually taken veneer trees, specifically prime trees hmm. that have oh, veneer wow. potential. And the, he's focusing on those as a, a match set with a bunch of, uh, I think the there's a grade one set and a prime set, and he's looking at the development of quality um, characteristics that can be seen on the outside of the trees before and after fires, and recording any how high is the char, what was the heat of fire by those trees. So oh, that wow. ought to tell us a lot. Yeah, I think he's about five years into that study, so I'm you know um, I'm thinking we've got another five years to wait. Yeah. Yeah, I, I never thought about that social side too, with the buyer kind of seeing char, but not, you know, in some ways they can pay less, but still get the same value out of it. So it's, yeah, that's, that's really important. Well, it's kind of uh, risk calculations, right? So the yeah. veneer buyers are always kind of weighing on partial information um, until that log actually gets sliced. Absolutely. Well said. Jan, you asked a question in a paper you co uh, you co-authored with Delton Alderman and David Brinberg um, that that I know, Greg, you've mentioned this and, and we've talked about it. Can we manage for, or so we, you, oh, do we manage for value or volume? Or I guess a better way, can we do both of those at the same time? And I'm pausing yeah. be, because uh, it, it remains a good question. Yeah. 
And since the time that I was involved in that research, I've become more integrated with uh, research programs in the Northern Research Station that are looking at uh, fully, you know, the variety of benefits that come from different types of forest management activities. Right then, I was coming out of my, I'm a wood products you know, volume, volume, volume stage. And and these were the two key questions, volume or value. But there, you know, there could be other questions layered on top of that, right, as well. Forest managers who are managing for enterprises that are, are trying to manage forests for value outcomes for their investors, what, you know, the answer to that is is probably tends more toward volume is going to be the bigger value impact than uh, veneer log quality. I'm having a little bit of a hard time with this because it's just a it's a hard question. I'm, yeah, I'm kind of stumbling through this. What do you guys have opinions on it? Well, I think it, what you said earlier, Jan, too, it kind of comes down to objectives, right? In terms of how you're balancing those trade-offs. I think it's really interesting what we talked about this concept of thinking about veneer quality, ring, texture, consistency, and maybe not maximizing growth rates, but trying to get consistency on a lot of levels. And that in a way compromises maximum volume growth. But can you do both of those things in the same stand? Well, maybe. Um, and it, to me, it kind of comes down to balancing objectives. And a lot of people have multiple objectives within those stands. But if you consider that a veneer log, a veneer tree is based, depending on species, you know, one and a half to nine times more valuable mm-hmm. than right. a grade one producing tree of the same size, you know, maybe you can do both by being more, more intentional, more deliberate in how, you know, we, you burn, but I know I've got 20 good trees out there that might yield veneer logs. Let me go get out, send a crew out there to, to take some of the fuel away from the base of those trees before I burn. Yeah. And not just, not just intentional about burning too, but intentional about thinning, intentional about, you, you mentioned skid trails and mm-hmm. trying to really recognize and uh, work with those small percentage, very high value trees. And I'm curious in some ways, you know, like, so we're thinking volume or value, like for production, right? So, but I wonder how, like when we start to put in carbon sequestration into that, how that changes. So that just feels like one more piece of the puzzle that's just going to be like, yeah. I don't know what another do layer, that. another yeah. layer. Yeah. Which will be really interesting. Maybe it's because all these layers are so hard to sift and winnow that I decided to retire because I just was <laughs> never going to, I was never going to answer all these questions. Well, the questions are never ending Jan. Yeah. And that's <laughs> like one reason we do Silvacast is so we can try to figure out some answers of where we're at, but we know that we'll never totally get there. Um, and as long as we keep comparing notes, I think that's what we got to keep doing. And uh, I just really enjoyed 
this conversation today, talking with you and getting to Joe from Iowa's question. Um, it's something that a lot of foresters, especially in the hardwood region, contemplate. And I think what we talked about today gives some ideas on uh, maybe some places to tweak our management. Yeah, this has been fascinating. Thank you very much, Jan. I've enjoyed it. It, it certainly exposed all the remaining questions. And Greg, we didn't tell Jan yet that she may, because you agreed to be on the show, you may be a lifeline in the future when we get questions that we can't answer related to this. So, <laughs> so you may get calls, you know, when we're three in the morning, when we're having a beer oh, talking well, about this. I was going to so. say my pleasure, but let me, let me revise that response and say <laughs> my pleasure if it's after five. I still <laughs> All right. There you go. <laughs> Otherwise, we just got to do what we usually do, Brad, and make up answers. That's right. <laughs> Say authoritatively. Everyone will believe it. So, Well, take care, Jan. Thank yep. you. Thanks a lot, Jan. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Hey, do you enjoy listening to Silvacast? Consider becoming a sponsor. Or are you interested in continuing education credits? Silvacast is now offering CEU and CFEs. Visit our Silvacast webpage for more information. Running Beer Veneer. This episode has a ring to it. I think I hear a show title. Yeah, well, I, I don't know about that, but any thoughts to end the show, Greg? Well, how about this one, Brad? It's a little quote. Advice from a tree. Stand tall and proud, go out on a limb, remember your roots, drink plenty of water, be content with your natural beauty, enjoy the view. That's from author Elon Shamir. I like it. Silviculture and life advice. We might have the corner on that market, Greg. <laughs> so in any event, thanks to you for listening to today's episode of Silvacast. If you have ideas for future episodes or a question for the Dropbox, please let us know. We learn best when we wrestle with questions, so keep them coming. And take care, everyone. And as always, thanks to our team, Haley Freighter, our producer, Noah LeMade, IT master, theme music by Paul Freighter, and of course, UW Stevens Points, Wisconsin Forestry Center. Mm -hmm.